Welcome to the reading of the Courier-Journal for Friday, November 11, 2022, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Greg Davis. First, let's read the local weather forecast from the WHAS-11 Storm Alert Team. Your local forecast. The remnants of Nicole are bringing heavy rain at times this morning. Up to an inch of rain is possible, especially along and east of I-65 and south of the Ohio River. Low 60s for highs today. Cold air arrives tonight with snow showers possible tomorrow morning. A dusting of snow possible on the grass, but with temperatures staying above freezing, roads will just be wet. Cold all weekend. Today, morning rain with a high of 62. Tonight, cold air arrives and a low of 34. Saturday, morning wintry mix. A high of 42 and a low of 27. Sunday, chilly sunshine. High of 43, low of 28. Monday, very cool and sunshine. High of 46 and a low of 30. Tuesday, light wintry mix with a high of 42 and a low of 32. And Wednesday, cool and dry a high of 48, and a low of 33. From the Almanac for Louisville through 4 p.m. Thursday. Temperature, high 74, low 50. Normal high 60, low 41. Record high 80 in 2020. Record low 21 in 1973. Precipitation. 24 hours through 4 p.m. Thursday was zero. Month to date, 0.01 inches. Normal month to date, 1.08 inches. Year to date, 38.03 inches. Normal year to date, 41.87 inches. Air quality. Unhealthy for sensitive groups yesterday, but good today. Sun and Moon Friday Sunrise, 7.19 a.m. Set, 5.34 p.m. Moonrise, 7.43 p.m. Set, 10.33 a.m. Saturday Sunrise, 7.21 a.m. Set, 5.30 p.m. Moonrise, 8.35 p.m. Set, 11.28 a.m. From the front page, our first article is entitled, Opportunity for Fruitful Lives. Family businesses in the Hispanic community are helping to save Preston Highway. Article by Olivia Evans. For Nagale Duarte, the dream of America and business ownership is one passed down from her parents. In 1985, at 16 years old, 
Duarte's father walked from Guatemala and swam across the Rio Bravo into Texas for a new life in the United States. The Duartes settled in Okalona around 2010 and, believing the neighborhood could become their home, pushed through weird looks and stares they often received. They felt out of place for four years, but eventually the family's determination to stick it out paid off. Today, Duarte and her husband, owners of La Morena Panadera y Tortiera, are part of a growing number of Hispanic entrepreneurs who are revitalizing Preston Highway, an 11-mile corridor long marred by vacant storefronts. While many have seen the highway as a growing wasteland, an increasing number of Hispanic residents see it as an opportunity to build fruitful lives for their families, friends, and generations to come. And as they continue to open taquerias, bakeries, and other businesses along the Okalona stretch, they're adding new life and culture to the corridor while bringing a needed economic boost to the surrounding neighborhood. I think we must recognize the contributions that those who aren't from here and who are new to our community are bringing to our community, said Amos Izermana, the Globalization Program Manager for Louisville's Office of Globalization. Why Hispanic Residents Are Drawn to Okalona To Izermana and others who work with Louisville immigrants, the shifting demographics in Okalona don't come as a shock. Organizations like Catholic Charities and Kentucky Refugee Ministries have worked feverishly to help relocate families around Louisville in recent years. And in 2019, Kentucky resettled over 1,400 immigrant families, ranking the state fifth for resettlement nationally. In the last fiscal year, more than 6,000 Cuban people have also moved to Louisville, Izermana said, with many drawn to Okalona's affordable homes and cheaper commercial rents. Today, census data shows the neighborhood is 22% Hispanic, following a 116% increase in Latino residents between 2010 and 2020. Okalona now has one of the largest concentrations of Hispanic residents in Jefferson County, which has a 7.5% Latino population, marking a big difference from when Duarte moved to the area 12 years ago. It was all Americans. You never saw, like, one Latino anywhere, Duarte said. The Americans would just stare at you like you're weird. We were just like, we don't belong here. That feeling has changed since Hispanic residents have encouraged their family and friends to move to Okalona, creating a familiar cultural hub in the middle of Louisville. Gabriella Shanklin, owner of Lil Shanklin's Donuts, a mobile mini donut pop-up, notes most Hispanic families didn't grow up in the area, but thanks to word-of-mouth endorsement from those already living in Okalona, immigrants know it's a community where they have opportunity to grow. Each day after school lets out, school buses pull into a small parking lot beside a used car dealer with a sign that reads, Hablamos Español, or We Speak Spanish, to drop children off at Wesley House, a family services center on Preston Highway. The center, located in an old church, is a prominent feature of the community, offering programs that span from early childhood development to after-school services to workforce development. Barrera, 
the bilingual program coordinator at Wesley House, works with Okalona area residents to provide English-speaking classes, digital upskilling, classes and other entrepreneurial-spirited classes that provide necessary skills to start and run a business. Okalona also provides an aura of cultural comfort. Residents who may not speak English or prefer Spanish have businesses located along the Preston Corridor that can meet that need. Most places in the neighborhood have employees who speak Spanish. Companies advertise in Spanish, and even the local Walmart has started to sell more items, such as 25-pound bags of rice and Goya products that are targeted for a Latino consumer. Without there being any barriers, language barriers, having that familiar face, that familiar mannerism, culture, everything, it just, it just helps make people feel comfortable. Barrera said. Businesses bring new life to Preston Highway. Driving down Preston Highway today, it would be difficult to miss the taco joints, specialty bakeries, ice cream shops, and Spanish signage. But these businesses aren't just another restaurant or dessert place. They are actively building and retaining wealth. Media often depicts the Hispanic community in a negative light and leads people to believe they're taking our jobs and they're getting social services and they don't pay taxes, said Christy Jarbo, Senior Economic Development Manager for Small Business at Louisville Forward. It's just not true, she said. In fact, many Hispanic business owners face challenges American business owners don't. For example... People who do not have a social security number and are not eligible for one often receive an individual taxpayer identification number, or ITIN, that lets them file federal taxes. People who use an ITIN for tax purposes are not eligible for benefits U.S. citizens are entitled to, according to the American Immigration Council, and those using an ITIN often pay more in taxes than people who have a social security number. People don't understand that for them to be out here starting a business and paying more than the average person that is from here, that just shows you, okay, we're going to make it out of here because we came from nothing, but we can do it, Duarte said. As of 2017, immigrants in Louisville have $1.4 billion in spending power and the 53,000 immigrants in the metro area contributed $497.9 million in taxes, according to data from New American Economy, a bipartisan research and advocacy organization fighting for immigration policies that help grow the economy and create jobs. That doesn't count the 24.6% of undocumented immigrants in the community, most of whom are paying their fair share of taxes through owning businesses, contract tax, and payroll taxes, Isaramana said. Besides the lofty contributions to taxes, the Hispanic community in Okalona has essentially taken ownership over Preston Highway and helped revitalize the corridor while forging a path for money to stay in the neighborhood. Jarbo said in the Okalona area, money spent at local businesses will move around 37 times before leaving the community. In other neighborhoods, money typically circulates in the community 10 to 12 times. Keeping money in the Okalona area gives the people who live there more opportunities to respend it, 
which helps with increasing overall economic performance by raising salaries and growing a tax base, Charbo said. In contrast, non-local, big-box stores take local dollars and remove them from the community, blocking the local economic growth. The plethora of taco res restaurants and Hispanic stores has led some residents to call Preston Highway Little Mexico, Duarte said. But longtime residents like Ruth Oglesby say it's nice to see the highway's empty buildings fill up again, regardless of what businesses inhabit them. I think that the fact these folks have opened a business that takes money, they're putting money into the community, I think the people all over the city should be happy about that, she said. Duarte sees the growth of her community as a living representation that Hispanic people are educated, hard workers, and capable of excelling despite challenges they face. I feel like we're thrown under dirt, but us brown and black people have power too, Duarte said. Shanklin, owner of the Donut Pop-Up, added she believes people need to take notice of the Hispanic community growth in Oklahoma because we're thriving. One thing about the Hispanic community in general is that we're fighters and we'll fight to the end. We're going to find a will and a way, Shanklin said. Shanklin called this attitude, echar palante, or to push forward. That's what you can see all up and down Oklahoma, all of Preston Highway, she said. People who came from nothing, who probably walked thousands of miles to get to the United States, who risked their lives to come to the United States. They had to push their family forward, and now they have businesses. Duarte agrees, saying she shoulders a lot of personal responsibility to advance the local Hispanic community. The preteen girl who battled through uncomfortable stares and judgment from neighbors has risen the ranks and become a highly influential member in her community. But even as she works her day job at Atlantic Bay Mortgage Group, Duarte sometimes finds herself questioning if she belongs. I just started as a loan originator and being in the office, and I feel like I don't belong there, Duarte said. I've got to stick it through. I've got to make something happen out of this. To show my kids just because my parents came from nothing doesn't mean I'm nothing. I can make a difference. Contact reporter Olivia Evans at oevans at courier-journal.com or on Twitter at, uh, at Olivia M. Evans underscore. The next article is entitled, Bashir Actively Reviewing Charges. Quadrant Magnetics, Others Charged by Feds in Military Fraud Case. Article by Caleb Stultz. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir's team is reviewing allegations against three people and a Louisville-based magnetics company after they were federally charged on an accusation they took part in an illegal scheme to send information about U.S. military projects to China while supplying the U.S. Department of Defense with unauthorized items. Phil Pasco, 60, and Monica Pasco, 45, of Floyd's Knobs, Indiana, and Scott Tubbs, a 59-year-old man from Georgetown, have been charged, along with Quadrant Magnetics LLC, with wire fraud, violations of the Arms Export Control Act, smuggling goods and selling U.S. military data to China, according to a release from the U.S. Department of Justice. 
They have also been charged with unlawfully supplying the Department of Defense with rare earth magnets used in aviation systems that were magnetized in China, a violation of national regulations. Quadrant Magnetics announced earlier this year it planned to build a $95 million rare earth magnet manufacturing facility in Louisville. The manufacturer already owns an engineering, assembly, and machining hub by Jeffersontown, which has been open since 2001. The new facility, dubbed Project Neograss, was pitched in previous, previous statements from the company as the blueprint that the magnetics industry and our customers need. It is a revitalization of rare earth manufacturing and research and development in the U.S. To help bring the project to Kentucky, Bashir's office previously said the state's Economic Development Finance Authority approved a 10-year incentive deal with Quadrant with up to $3.4 million in tax breaks possible if certain conditions were met, including creating at least 200 full-time jobs with an average wage of at least $28.15. Now, that deal could be at risk. Crystal Staley, a Bashir spokesperson, said the governor's office just learned of the charges against this company and are actively reviewing them. We fully support any and all efforts to protect our national security and are grateful for the hard work of the dedicated professionals in our federal law enforcement agencies, Staley said Thursday in an email. Brandon Mattingly, a spokesperson for Kentucky's Cabinet for Economic Development, said the board sees national security as its top priority. The tax incentive agreement has not yet received final approval, he said, and Quadrant has not yet taken any action to claim those incentives. The state tax incentive agreement, preliminarily approved through the Kentucky Business Investment Program in January for the company's proposed investment to manufacture rare earth magnets in Kentucky, are performance-based in nature, with no upfront money exchanged as part of the agreement, Mattingly said in an email. We will await further information as it becomes available and are prepared to support the federal government in their investigation. The indictment from the Department of Justice said between January 2012 and December 2018, the three defendants conspired to send approximately 70 drawings containing export-controlled technical data to a company located in China without a license from the U.S. government. The charging document also alleged Quadrant imported its rare earth magnets from a company in China. Once they were in the U.S., the indictment said, Quadrant sold those products to two U.S. companies, which included the magnets and military equipment sold to the Department of Defense. Under the Defense Acquisition Regulation System, rare earth magnets sold to the Department of Defense are required to have been produced and magnetized in the U.S., or in another authorized country, a list that does not include China. The Department of Justice said the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the IRS Criminal Investigation Unit, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, and the Department of Energy's Office of Inspector General are investigating the case, according to the release. Quadrant bills itself as the worldwide leader in the magnetic industry on its website. 
The company's global headquarters are in San Diego, with additional offices in Europe, Asia, and Australia. Its Louisville hub is located at 12500 Plantside Drive, where it produces rare earth magnets used in electric vehicle motors and other products. The roles these three people hold with the company were not noted in the release, but Business First previously reported Phil Pasco is the president of Quadrant Magnetics. Requests for comments sent early Thursday morning to Quadrant were not immediately returned. The next article is entitled, JCPS Events to Answer Questions About New Student Assignment Plan. Article by Krista Johnson. Jefferson County Public Schools will host three events in the coming week to help answer questions from families living in the district's choice zone about the new student assignment plan. The zone refers to 13 schools in and around Louisville's West End that serve an overwhelming number of students from impoverished backgrounds. Under the plan approved this summer, those schools will receive more money and students will have the option to opt out of business busing to attend a school closer to home. Additionally, the district's magnet programs are undergoing several changes, including the addition of a new magnet school in the West End. Given the factors to consider ahead of the next school year, the district hopes the events will help families make an informed choice about which school to pick for their students. School choice team members will be able to answer questions, walk families through application processes, and help answer questions about what school choice means for me and what school does uh, my student have to choose from, JCPS spokeswoman Carolyn Callahan said. Each event will have at least one translator on site to assist, though the Newcomer Academy event will have eight translators present. There will also be refreshments and snacks. The events will be November 12th at Western Middle School for the Arts at 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., November 14th at Newcomer Academy at 5 to 7 p.m. November 15th, at the California Community Center at 6 to 8 p.m. The Choice Zone application deadline is December 16th. For those with questions, email askstudentassignment at jeffersonkyschools.us or call 502-485-6250. The next article is entitled, Militia Leader Grandmaster J Gets Seven-Plus Years in Prison. Article by Ana Rocio Alvarez Brinez. The leader of a black militia that marched through Louisville two times during the 2020 protests will spend several years behind bars on charges that he'd pointed a rifle at law enforcement officials more than two years ago. John Johnson, also known as Grandmaster J, was sentenced Wednesday to seven years and two months in prison after being found guilty of assaulting and brandishing a firearm towards state and federal officers on the eve of the 2020 Kentucky Derby, according to a statement from the U.S. Department of Justice. Johnson, 59, had initially been indicted by a federal grand jury in February 2021 and subsequently found guilty in May of this year. 
Aside from his prison sentence, Johnson will also have to serve three years of supervised release with no option of parole, according to the release. A Cincinnati-area resident, Johnson came to Louisville on September 4, 2020, with the militia group he leads, the Not FFFF and Around Coalition, to participate in protests over the police killing of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old black woman shot by Louisville Metro police officers serving a no-knock warrant at her apartment in March 2020. During his time in Louisville that September, his second trip to the city following a demonstration earlier in the summer, Johnson was accused of pointing his AR-15 rifle toward a roof where an FBI agent, a Secret Service agent, and three LMPD officers had been stationed, according to a federal complaint, which said the officers were blinded by a light, which they shortly thereafter determined was a flashlight mounted to the rifle being aimed at them by Johnson. Johnson was later found guilty of one count of assaulting a federal officer and one count of brandishing a firearm in relation to a crime of violence, with the Department of Justice arguing he'd forcibly assaulted, resisted, opposed, impeded, intimidated, and interfered with a federally deputized task force officer who was performing official duties at the time of the incident. Attorney Murdoch Walker II, who is representing Johnson in the case, told the Courier-Journal it was a bittersweet day and the sentencing was inevitable. They plan to appeal, he added. Now it's time for the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, Please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. Today's Obituaries and Death Notices Betty Bennett, 74, from Glasgow Maxine Warner Calhoun, 89, from Orlando, Florida Sharon Gale Carlton, 72, from White Plains. Robert Wayne Cecil, 71, from Bardstown. Sister Catherine de Marie Conaty, 99, from Louisville. Stephen Curl, 32, from Tell City. Donald H. Frenzel, 85, from Brandenburg. Patricia S. Glidewell, 83, from Louisville. Regina L. Now, 96, from Jeffersonville, Indiana. Margie Lee Phelps Henderson, 84, from Louisville. Joel Jody Hubbard, 66, from Corridon. Edith Evelyn Hebschman, 88, from Harvest, Alabama. Chuck Jenkins, 84, from Elizabethtown. Jason Lee Johnston, 40, from Elizabethtown. Pauline Judd, 80, from Campbellsville. William Franklin Frankie Kelleher, 31, from Glasgow. June Ann Ireland Kernan, 89, from Madison. Ilona Lydia Quartz, 94, from Louisville. Sandy Lefevers, 72, no town shown. Stella Lindauer, 103, 
from Louisville. Sean Martin, 35, from Salem. Joseph Richard J.R. Mattingly, 71, from Loretto. John Marson McCrary, 88, from Richmond. James Anton Jim McIntyre, 90, no town shown. Ellen McKinley, 96, formerly of Borden. Charles Edward Milligan, 90, from Central City. Russell Onstott, 73, from Elizabethtown. James Trigg Pace, 102, from Glasgow. Douglas Doug E. Ratterman, 71, from Fort Lauderdale. Lisa Riley, 60, from Burksville. Kevin Robert Cole Shibley, 23, from Taylorsville. Charles F. Short Sr., 85, from Louisville. Karina Marie Snowden, 33, from Louisville. Ronald Michael Sullivan, 87, from Owensboro. Amy Thomas, 51, from Frankfurt. Larry Joe Trowbridge, 73, from Holy Cross. Barbara Ann Ward, 73, from Louisville. Joseph Dale Wilhoyt, 45, from Eminence. Corbin Price Wyatt, 19, from Glasgow. If you would like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390 and we will be glad to read the entire item to you. From the Metro section, a first article is entitled Election 2022 Abortion Rights. Amendment 2 opponents celebrate. Supporters of measure point fingers at radical out-of-state activists. Article by Deborah Yetter. A clear message and a strong grassroots effort helped opponents defeat a measure on Tuesday's ballot meant to eliminate abortion rights from the state constitution. Members of a campaign organized to fight it said on a press call Wednesday. While our opponents have complained ceaselessly about what they called out-of-state activists, what we saw on the ground was hundreds, if not thousands, of Kentuckians working together to stop the politicians and special interests that put their freedom at risk, said Rachel Sweet, manager of the Protect Kentucky Access campaign. Supporters of Constitutional Amendment 2, led by Yes for Life, raised that complaint in a statement early Wednesday on the defeat of the measure on a vote of about 53% to 48%, a difference of almost 70,000 votes. We are devastated that radical out-of-state activists spent millions of dollars to confuse Kentuckians about the Yes for Life Amendment, the Yes for Life Alliance said in a statement. And Adia Wukner, executive director of Kentucky Right to Life, said in a statement that amendment supporters won't quit the fight. Action in other states. Kentucky was one of five states with abortion measures on the ballot. Voters in California, Michigan, and Vermont voted to protect abortion rights in their state constitutions, while a measure in Montana to limit abortion in some circumstances remained pending Wednesday. Today we're disappointed, said Wuchner, 
who also is chairwoman of Yes for Life. But tomorrow we will be motivated. This work is too important to quit, and we look forward to the next phase of pro-life advocacy in Kentucky. Kentucky's one-sentence proposed amendment stated, To protect human life, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. Amendment opponents acknowledge Wednesday their work isn't over and that they will continue to try to restore access to abortion in Kentucky, which currently is illegal except for medical emergencies. Current law provides no exemptions for pregnancy from rape or incest or fetal anomalies that threaten the health of the pregnant individual or the fetus. But for now, the rejection of the amendment offers a possibility of restoring abortion access through legal challenges to such state laws. We all know that abortion remains illegal in Kentucky, said Jackie McGranahan with the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky, a member of Protect Kentucky Access. But this victory has left Kentucky's very strong constitutional privacy protections intact. A lawsuit on behalf of Kentucky's two abortion providers, Planned Parenthood and EMW Women's Surgical Center, is pending before the state Supreme Court. It seeks a temporary ruling to allow them to resume abortion services, while a challenge to Kentucky abortion law works its way through the state court system. McGranahan said the ACLU, whose lawyers are involved in the case, will continue the court fight to restore abortion access that ended in Kentucky after the Supreme Court on June 24th struck down Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 case that established abortion as a federal constitutional right. Kentucky was among about a dozen states with a trigger law to outlaw abortion in the event of such a ruling. Meanwhile, Protect Kentucky Access members disputed claims that they relied on out-of-state activists to defeat the amendment. Sweet, who ran the Kansas campaign to defeat a similar abortion amendment in August, said Protect Kentucky Access consisted of seven organizations with deep roots in the Commonwealth, including Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, the Kentucky Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, and the Fairness Campaign. Moreover, scores of volunteers from 99 of 120 Kentucky counties worked to get out the group's message before Election Day through more than 600,000 contacts with voters, through calls, text messages, and going door-to-door, -door, she said. We had a really strong field program and a really strong ground game, Sweet said. Protect Kentucky Access also raised more than $5 million for its campaign, compared to about $1 million raised by Yes for Life, which Sweet said gave the anti-amendment campaign resources it needed to reach voters. Sweet said opponents defeated the amendment with the help of Democratic, Republican, and Independent voters who understood the amendment and believed it went too far. Amendment 2 would give politicians the power to ban abortions with no exceptions, she said. We are really pleased to see that message resonated and got through. The next article is entitled, Women Dominate Judicial Races. Men won one of five when facing a female. Article by Andrew Wolfson. 
Women continued to dominate judicial elections on Tuesday in Jefferson County, where candidates vied in 16 contested races. Men won only one of the five races in which a male faced a female, with Anthony Jones defeating Emily Monarch. That continues a trend in which men are pretty close to extinction, as one judge proclaimed after elections four years ago left only eight men out of 40 on the bench. Here are the other results from Tuesday, in which four of five incumbents retained their seats. In one of two Court of Appeals contests, District Judge Annette Karam, who was trying to jump up two notches on the court ladder, defeated Mackenzie Cantrell, a state representative. In the other appellate contest, Circuit Judge Audra Eckerly defeated Tricia Lister, who had less name recognition. None of the four candidates were endorsed by Citizens for Better Judges, while the local chapter of Showing Up for Racial Justice backed Cantrell and Lister. In an intriguing race for Circuit Court, District Judge Judy Kalin, a progressive who opposes cash bail and was backed by the group Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURJ, handily beat Ebert Hagley, an assistant Commonwealth's attorney who was endorsed by Citizens for Better Judges, or CBJ. In another circuit contest that was followed closely, incumbent Mary Shaw, who signed the warrant for the police search that led to Breonna Taylor's death, was defeated by Tracy Yvette Davis, despite a recent report that Davis had a conviction in 2019 for reckless and drunken driving. In the three other circuit races, Ted Schaus, an outspoken criminal defense lawyer, lost to Melissa Bellows, who practices civil and criminal law. Sarah Clay, who was endorsed by both CBJ and SURJ, defeated Nicole Compton, who has both JD and MBA degrees. Patricia Tish Morris, who was trying to follow in the footsteps of her late father, Jeffrey Morris, a former circuit court judge, beat Doris Lee Gilbert, a former assistant Commonwealth's attorney and an advocate for domestic violence victims. In district court races, Anthony Jones, a former assistant public advocate in Henderson and an assistant county attorney in Jefferson County, beat the male jinx by defeating Emily Monarch. Christina Garvey, the incumbent, beat Kelly Bowles, who in a campaign bio described herself as a public school teacher and a proud member of the LGTBQ community. Yvette Delagardia, a former public defender, defeated Laura Holman, who has been a solo practitioner and who grew up in Oldham County. Incumbent Lisa Langford easily beat challenger Justin C. Brown, a former public defender. Megan McDonald, a lawyer and mediator, and the daughter of former judges Tom and Dee McDonald, defeated Shanner Falver, who was endorsed by SURJ. Karen Faulkner, a former public defender who ran unsuccessfully for county attorney in 2014 and who was endorsed by CBJ, beat Jessica Stone, an assistant county attorney, single mom, and former ballet dancer. Incumbent Tanisha Hickerson, who was endorsed by CBJ, trounced challenger Caitlin Dean, 
a Kansas native who described herself as a military spouse and an impartial servant leader. The daughter of Jefferson Circuit Clerk David Nicholson, Sarah Michael Dick Nicholson, who was elected to district court in 2016 after practicing law only two years and was deemed unqualified by 81% of lawyers in a Louisville Bar Association poll, walloped Christian Garrison, a former public defender and assistant county attorney. Mary Jew Wolford, who began her career as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Western District of New York when her husband, Will, played for NFL's Buffalo Bills and was later an assistant Jefferson County attorney, easily beat Claudette Patton, one of the first women to clerk for famed criminal defense attorney Frank Haddad, and later a law clerk for federal judge Charles Allen and a deputy attorney general who also practices in private firms and taught for several universities. Reach Andrew Wolfson at 502-582-7189 or contact him at awolfson at courier-journal.com or on Twitter at adwolfson. The next article is entitled, Family Bar Celebrates a Father's Resilience. It's a reflection of the man who took his fear dread of his sons in World War II, and built something. Martin Kovacic smiled down at me from a photograph as I ripped out the 400 or so nails he hammered into the bar. The weight he must have felt with each bang of his hammer wasn't lost on me as I jimmied those nails out one by one. About eight decades ago, Martin's only two children left home to fight in World War II. George, the eldest, joined the U.S. Army Air Force, and Bob, who was just 17, begged his mother to sign the paperwork so that he could enlist in the Navy early. Meanwhile, Martin did what he did best. He built something with his hands. He wanted a bar to throw a party at when his boys came home. The details of that party never made it into my family's lore, but I suppose I'm walking proof that Martin had plenty to celebrate when the war ended in 1945. His sons came home, and our family line continued. I never knew my great-grandfather, but the bar he built lives on as an unusual relic of an American father's resilience during an incredibly difficult chapter of our nation's history. Now that relic is bolted to my dining room floor in Germantown. Last week, my mother passed the family bar down to me, and in honor of Veterans Day, it's my privilege to share with you what I know about the man who built it and the sons who inspired it. By all accounts, my great-grandfather was an extremely resourceful man. Martin never earned a high school diploma, but he was a talented craftsman and bricklayer. He built his own home and countless other 20th century buildings in my hometown of St. Louis. I have no idea how long it took Martin to build this bar, but my guess is it evolved as he found the materials. Times were tough, rationing was real, and supplies were slim. The seven-foot by one-and-one-half-foot bar-top slab was an old baker's block he got from a long-gone bakery. My family suspects much of the wood paneling on the sides came from scraps at construction sites where he worked. 
The back of the bar shows an assortment of raw wood that, until Monday, was covered on the front end with weathered maroon vinyl. As I ripped that covering out to refinish the bar, I found what appears to be padding for quilting. When I peeled back that fluff, I halfway hoped he'd signed his name or left a note beneath it. I was the first person to touch it since he'd sealed it up more than 77 years ago. The only message I got, though, was one of hard work. More than 400 nails secured that padding to those boards, so I humbled myself and I grabbed a hammer and a five-way tool. Then I spent two hours undoing his careful handiwork so that I could retile the front. Using those tools, it was impossible not to think of my own grandfather. Bob, or Gramps as I called him, lived to be 90. By the time I was born in the late 1980s, he'd been out of the service for more than 40 years. He often wore a smile and a ball cap, identifying him as a U.S. Navy veteran. He became a stonemason, and just like his father, he left his own mortar fingerprints on buildings throughout St. Louis. I was probably three years old the first time Gramps let me help him in his garage. I remember sitting in a child-sized plastic red chair as he passed me wrenches, hammers, and clamps that he once used on the job. My brother and I made a game of twisting small holes in his workbench with a screwdriver. Those marks are still there today, but now the bench is a table in my sunroom instead of a workstation in a garage. By the time I pulled the last dozen nails from the bar, I'd cried a few tears over the memories and laughed out loud at the absurdity of it all. Perhaps if Grandpa and I had played with a tea set instead of tools, I might have put Great-Grandma's china cabinet in my dining room instead of the bar. That wouldn't have nearly as much meaning, though. I saw that firsthand as my family sat around the bar's new home in my dining room this past weekend. The old stories flowed even faster than the bourbon did. My mom retold the story about how my great-grandmother only agreed to let my grandfather enlist if he promised to finish high school. Gramps kept his word on that, too. He came back from war, enrolled in school, and drove to campus in a convertible each day. He was in his early 20s when he graduated, and all his buddies were three years younger than him. But he did it. Gramps was part of the first generation in my family to earn a high school diploma. Then Mom passed around two photos from my grandparents' wedding day. In one, the bridal party is giving a toast. In another, Gramps is wearing a suit and pouring a drink, while Martin is grinning nearby in more casual clothes. That's just how my great-grandfather was, my mom said. He wasn't flashy, and even on his son's wedding day, he probably changed out of church clothes as soon as he could. Those are also the first known pictures of the bar. There are dings, dents, and scrapes along the top now. This piece of furniture has been well-loved, extremely used, and not often protected. Unlike great-grandma's dining room set, this bar was never meant to be formal. It's a reflection of the man who took his fear and his dread and built something with it. While I never heard how that party at the end of the war went, in the wedding photos that now sit on the bookshelf in my dining room, Martin is smiling. For all the grief and worry that went into making the bar, my family's story has a happy ending. Martin's sons came home. 
Gramps lived to have a family of his own. I'm well aware that I'm inheriting so much more than a bar. I also had 28 good years with my grandfather. Even after all this time, that's worth raising a glass to. Features columnist Maggie Mendersky writes about what makes Louisville, Southern Indiana, and Kentucky unique, wonderful, and occasionally a little weird. If you've got something in your family, your town, or even your closet that fits that description, she wants to hear from you. Say hello at mmenderski at courier-journal.com or 502-582-4053. Follow along on Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Mendersky. The next article is entitled Hurricane Nicole Slams Storm Weary Florida Coast. Article by John Bacon, Will Greenlee, Doyle Rice, and Tao Nguyen. More than 300,000 homes and businesses across central Florida were without power Thursday as Hurricane Nicole, downgraded to a tropical storm but still large and dangerous, slammed the region with powerful winds and heavy rain. The rare November hurricane, which made landfall south of Vero Beach on Thursday as a Category 1 storm, was centered about 30 miles northeast of Tampa at 10 a.m., the National Hurricane Center warned that Nicole would bring heavy downpours, strong winds, dangerous storm surge, and flooding across a swath of the southeast over the next few days. This is a life-threatening situation, Jack Bevan, a senior hurricane specialist at the Hurricane Center, wrote in an advisory. People in the region, he said, should take all necessary actions to protect life and property, from rising water and the potential for other dangerous conditions. Tornado watches were issued for parts of Florida and Georgia. The city is flooding at a rapid pace and the Bridge of Lions is closed, the city said in a Twitter post. There are several roads that are impassable and closed, more than the usual flooded areas. The storm washed more sea turtle eggs ashore across the Treasure Coast just weeks after Hurricane Ian caused similar damage to nests. Several cracked and broken sea turtle eggs were found washed up with scattered debris onto a wooden boardwalk and beach access Thursday at St. Lucia Beach in Martin County. Residents report similar sightings across the Treasure Coast where beaches with known turtle nests were wiped out by the storm surge and waves. After Hurricane Ian in September, hundreds of sea turtle eggs were unearthed and scattered across a beach in Fort Pierce and other Treasure Coast cities. Some communities were breathing a sigh of relief after Nicole's Center rolled through. In Felsmere, a town of 5,000 people 20 miles northwest of Vero Beach, police said on Facebook that all streets were open except one that was blocked by a fallen tree. There is no major flooding anywhere in the city, and as of the time of this post, no downed power lines have been observed, police said. Janet and Ken Comey of Satellite Beach were among the people gathered at Pelican Beach Park on Thursday morning to look at the waves during high tide. They said they fared well during the storm. The couple moved from New Hampshire to Satellite Beach three years ago. When we moved here, the first thing we did was put in a full house generator, Janet Comey said. We never had to use it. What is Nicole's path? 
Nicole, with tropical storm force winds extending outward up to 450 miles, was moving west-northwest at 14 miles per hour, and forecasters predicted a turn toward the north. Do not focus on the exact track of Nicole, Senior Hurricane Specialist Robbie Berg said. It is a large storm with hazards extending well to the north of the center, outside of the forecast cone. The center of Nicole was forecast to move across the Florida Panhandle, Georgia, and the Carolinas into Friday, the National Hurricane Center said. Heavy rain could flood parts of the region. Warnings and watches were issued for many parts of Florida, including the southwestern Gulf coastline that was devastated by Hurricane Ian when it slammed through as Category 4 storm on September 28th. Airports and theme parks have been shut down, and a swath of evacuations included former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club. The next article is entitled, Biden to meet with China's leader. Tensions over Taiwan have grown since Pelosi's visit. Article by Amr Madani and Zeke Miller. President Joe Biden will meet Monday with President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of next week's Group of 20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, a face-to-face -face meeting that comes amid increasingly strained U.S.-China relations, the White House announced Thursday. It will be the first in-person meeting between the leaders of the world's two biggest economies since Biden became president in January 2021 and comes weeks after Xi was awarded a norm-breaking third five-year five term as the Chinese Communist Party leader during the party's National Congress. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said in a statement the leaders will meet to discuss efforts to maintain and deepen lines of communication between the two countries and to responsibly manage competition and work together where our interests align, especially on transnational challenges that affect the international community. The White House has been working with Chinese officials over the last several weeks to arrange the meeting. Biden on Wednesday told reporters that he intended to discuss with Xi growing tensions between Washington and Beijing over the self-ruled island of Taiwan, trade policies, Beijing's relationship with Russia, and more. What I want to do with him when we talk is lay out what each of our red lines are and understand what he believes to be in the critical national interests of China, what I know to be the critical interests of the United States, Biden said, and determine whether or not they conflict with one another. The White House sought to downplay expectations for the meeting, telling reporters there was no joint communique or deliverables anticipated from the sit-down. I don't think you should look at this meeting as one in which there's going to be specific deliverables announced, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said. Rather, the two leaders are going to give direction to their teams to work on a number of areas, both areas where we have differences and areas where we can work together. Biden and Xi traveled together in the U.S. and China in 2011 and 2012 when both leaders were serving as their respective countries' vice presidents, and they have held five phone or video calls since Biden became president in January 2021. But the U.S.-China relationship has become far more complicated since those getting-to-know-you talks in Washington and on the Tibetan plateau a decade ago. 
As president, Biden has repeatedly taken China to task for human rights abuses against the Uyghur people and other ethnic minorities. Beijing's crackdowns on democracy advocates in Hong Kong, coercive trade practices, military provocations against self-ruled Taiwan, and differences over Russia's prosecution of its war against Ukraine. Weeks before Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, the Russian president met with Xi in Beijing, and the two issued a memorandum expressing hopes of a no-limits relationship for their nations. China has largely refrained from criticizing Russia's war, but thus far has held off on supplying Moscow with arms. I don't think there's a lot of respect that China has for Russia or Putin, Biden said Wednesday, and in fact, they've been sort of keeping the distance a little bit. The leaders were also expected to address U.S. frustrations that Beijing has not used its influence to press North Korea to pull back from conducting provocative missile tests and to abandon its nuclear weapons program. Biden was set to discuss threats from North Korea with the leaders of South Korea and Japan a day before sitting down with Xi. Xi's government has criticized the Biden administration's posture toward Taiwan, which Beijing looks eventually to unify with the communist mainland, as undermining China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. The Chinese president has also suggested that Washington wants to stifle Beijing's growing clout as it tries to overtake the U.S. as the world's largest economy. Tensions over Taiwan have grown since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in August. Biden said that he's not willing to make any fundamental concessions about the United States-Taiwan doctrine. Under its One China policy, the United States recognizes the government of Beijing while allowing for informal relations and defense ties with Taipei. It takes a stance of strategic ambiguity toward the defense of Taiwan, leaving open the question of whether it would respond militarily or the island attacked. Asked about the anticipated meeting, China's foreign ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian said at a Thursday news briefing that China was looking for win-win cooperation with the U.S., while reiterating Beijing's concerns about the U.S. stance on Taiwan. The U.S. needs to stop obscuring, hollowing out, and distorting the One China principle, abide by the basic norms in international relations, including respecting other countries' sovereignty, territorial integrity, and non-interference in other countries' internal affairs, he said. Biden caused a stir in Asia in May when, at a news conference in Tokyo, said, yes, when asked if he was willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if China invaded. The White House and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was quick to clarify that there was no change in U.S. policy.